You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments, from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend on the stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for the man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray now that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that we might see him in your word. Help us to worship, help us to love him, help us to uh, grow in our love for one another even as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, that was a long text, but it's good to just hear Lydia just read that. We could just read, listen all, all night. Uh, tonight's a Torch Week, uh, so if you're a fourth through sixth grader and you would like to join Patrick and Gail to talk about this wonderful chapter from Exodus, you can do that, or you can stay and listen to me talk about it. Well, time spent with others is the way to know others and the way to enjoy others. I'm sorry, I just saw Ben Johnson's hair, and I like, I, I, I can't, I, sorry, all right. Uh, it's gone, it's gone. Uh, it's a miracle of the Lord. Uh, all right, sorry. Uh, where was I? Uh, spending time with others, right. Um, well, Marcy and I were originally from the same hometown of Denton, Texas, but we, we didn't know each other growing up. And uh, I was at the University of Texas in Austin. She was at the University of South Florida, where she went off to college. and. Uh, our junior year of college, this website became a thing. It was called thefacebook.com, uh, and you had to have like an EDU email address to be on it. And, uh, and so my wife and I, Marcy, we, we essentially met on Facebook. Uh, we had a lot, lots of mutual friends. We knew of each other, but had never actually met in person uh, until one fateful day I was procrastinating studying for finals, and I was totally stalking her photos. Um, and saw that she had been on a uh, mission trip with her college ministry at her church um, at the University of South Florida, and I just commented on it and said, where were you? And then we were off to the races. Uh, for that next entire six months, throughout the rest of that semester and throughout the summer, we, we wrote physical letters. Uh, it, was a, it was a long time ago, like 2005. Uh, but uh, we didn't even really text back then. That was weird. Uh, we were at physical letters, we talked a lot on the phone, we were getting to know each other long distance. Uh, we were both pretty excited about where we thought that this could be heading, but we had never hung out with each other in person. And so at the end of that summer, we decided to, she would come to, to Austin to spend a weekend uh, with me and my friends and just kind of see. Um, and we were pretty sure that this weekend was going to confirm what we already thought, and we were right. Uh, but had we been wrong, and this thing, being together, was weird. That was, it was just going to be the weirdest, most awkward weekend of all time. And we were just like, sat there and like, looked at each other and been like, okay, well, I guess it's probably time for you to leave now or something. I don't know. Uh, well, Exodus 33, right, where was I? Uh, Exodus 33 is all about presence, is all about being with one another, is all about being with God. Will God live with his people, or will his people ever be separated from him? Living with God has been the entire goal of this book of Exodus, so chapter 33 is, com is coming to us as a bit of a crossroad. Perhaps as we've been reading through and following through, uh, maybe you didn't read ahead this week, and as you were hearing Lydia read this, you're like, wait, did God just say what I think he said? Because this seems weird. This took a turn. We're going to think about this dense chapter in two sections. 
thinking through this in the absence of God and the presence of God. And hopefully in 35 or 40 minutes from now, we'll become all the more convinced that the Christian life is not worth living unless it is lived with God while beholding his glory. So first of all, the absence of God. We have now, the last two weeks, gotten through the hell of chapter 32. Israel had rejected God. Moses had interceded on their behalf. 3,000 people are killed by the sword, and the rest have come under some plague. And if that sounds weird, it, it is. Uh, if you weren't with us the last two weeks, you can just go back and read that chapter and or find those sermons on the podcast or the website. But then we turn the page onto this scene that we find in chapter 33. And we're not sure how long it's been since the end of chapter 32 and the beginning of chapter three or 33. It's re- but it really is just a continuation of where we left off last week. It seems to be good news initially that God is delivering to Moses. He's saying, leave from here. And Moses has got to be thinking, finally, like we have been here for so long, this mountain that they have been encamped at. And God says, go to the land which I am going to give you, the land that I promised your fathers. Finally, they have been at this mountain for a while, but even longer than that, they've been traveling across the wilderness. They have been redeemed from slavery, but there has not been one day of finally secured rest, a land of their own. And God tells Moses that he's going to send an angel ahead of them to drive out their enemies. Amazing. And it's going to be, once they arrive, a land of milk and honey, meaning it is a land of peace and abundance. The only way that there is honey is if there are plants and flowers growing over a sustained amount of time and the bees are able to pollinate and gather and make the honey. This, in other words, this is not a war zone. The only way there's milk is if there are healthy cows and goats and the grass for, on which they can feed. It is a land of peace. But if Moses was paying attention, a couple of words ought to have caught his attention before Yahweh drops the bomb at the end of verse 3. Throughout the Exodus narrative, God has been saying that these are the people that he, that I, God, has brought out of Egypt. Now, in verse 1, he says, yeah, these are the people that you, Moses, that you have brought out of Egypt. It seems like God is almost distancing himself from the people, and God has repeatedly Uh, promised to Moses and the people that he would send his angel, the angel of the Lord, ahead of the people. Now, he tells Moses he's just going to send like an angel. Maybe that's something, maybe it's not. Maybe Moses is listening and thinking, well, that's weird, and and that's weird. But then his weird suspicions are confirmed in verse 3, where God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You can go. You all can go. All of the blessings and the peace of the land will be yours, but I will not go with you. Why? Well, for the same reason, the same thing that he told Moses in chapter 32, that the people are stiff-necked, and God is concerned that he will destroy them along the way. God has already called them stiff-necked in the chapter before. Two weeks ago, we thought about how this phrase is used of stubborn livestock, oxen or donkeys that will not be moved by the driver. The, the, the yoke is pulling on their neck, but they are stubborn. They are willful. They are just going to go their own way. They will not be led. And so God is reiterating the problem that we've thought through the past many weeks. He cannot dwell with a sinfully stubborn people. We call this 
the problem of or the question of the Old Testament. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people without destroying them? But I think we can read a text like this and import all kinds of assumptions onto the nature and character of God. Like, God knows his character, and he's like, uh, he, he's like some like Michael Scott character who just, he might like just fly off the handle. And he's just like, no, 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 you people again, I will just destroy you or something. Like he doesn't lack self, or he lacks self-control. And he knows his own inclinations and his frustrations with the people. So he doesn't want to go with them. But just as we thought through how God can change his mind two weeks ago, but in categories that we as humans can't quite comprehend because God can't learn any new information and God can't be coerced, the two ways in which we change our minds, on a narrative like this, we can understand God's uh, concern in categories that are perhaps difficult for us to understand. A classical theological category can perhaps help us make sense of this, though. The doctrine is called that of divine impassibility. That, that's pass, impassable, passable, not passable. If it was impassable, he would be like a Ferrari or a race car or something. Like that, that Ferrari or the race horse or the race car is impassable. You can't pass him. But this is impassable, meaning like... Uh, he can't be moved, or he's like a, almost like a, a closed system, like, like a mountain pass after a blizzard becomes impassable. Impassable means he is unchangeable, he is impenetrable. And so when we say that God is impassable, we mean that God does not change or make decisions based on emotions, either from within himself or from those caused by human actions outside of himself. Now, this is a different, difficult doctrine because God seems to respond emotionally all over the Bible. But God does not react and respond emotionally as we think of how we respond emotionally, how we respond or react, being led by our emotions. We think of ourselves, perhaps, and perhaps we can think about God in these categories in the same way, that we've got like all of these tanks of emotions, Tanks of emotions that are more or less full at different times of the day or different parts of our life. Tanks like love or tanks like mercy or justice. And whichever tank happens to be more full at that moment, uh, that's how I will react. If I am more loving at the moment than I am just at the moment, then I will respond with love. But this is not the way that God responds. This is, that kind of thinking, though, is exactly the way that Greek gods or gods of nearly every other culture act. As gods, divine versions of just ourselves. We import ourselves in the way that we think of ourselves and just assume that this must be true of the gods or of God too. But God is not human and this is not how he acts or reacts. God doesn't just choose to love. God is love. God doesn't do what is just. He is just his love and his justice are just emanations, are extensions of his being. He cannot be any more kind than he already is. Think, just consider this as you're falling asleep tonight. God cannot be any more kind than he already is. He is 100% and eternally kind. He cannot be any more merciful than he already is. He cannot be any more holy 
than he already is. And so throughout the centuries, theologians have thought about God's responses to humanity, like this one in Exodus 33, as effects rather than effects. That is, when we read about God being described in human emotional language, we are reading about the effects that God causes us to experience of himself rather than his responses that, he, that we have affected in him. Again, all this is like the deep end. Exodus is just the deep end of theology. But maybe further, further considering divine impassibility will help us again as we go back and read chapter 32 or as we continue in chapter 33 that God changing his mind about something, really and actually, but in his sovereign knowledge of the past, present, and future, of his sovereign knowledge of the inner parts of the human heart, all of this, and yet he is then choosing to uh, cause humanity to experience the effects of one aspect of his character. At different points in human history, God chooses to allow humanity to experience different effects of his character. Holiness and just judgment, they aren't just something that God decides to do. God is holy. God is a consuming fire. Not just when the people tick him off or they finally push him over the edge. He is always just and holy. And so here in chapter 33, it isn't that God is really concerned that he's going to fly off the handle if they finally push him over the edge, but that the paradox of the Old Testament is a still very real one. How will God dwell with a sinful people? Will he just ongoingly choose to reveal merely the effects of his character of patience and kindness and never choose to reveal the effects of his justice, of his holiness? He doesn't want to destroy the people. Remember, he has already turned his mind toward their survival. And so God says, just go on without me. You'd rather make your own gods in rejection of me? Fine, just go ahead. I'll even keep my promises to your fathers and give you the land. No more worrying about what to eat and drink. No more worrying about uh, armies attacking you from all sides. No more slavery, no more wandering, just peace, just rest. But it will all be without me. Now, knowing myself, I think the first question for me and for all of us tonight would be, would you take that deal? If God promised to give you the six-figure job promotion that you would never have to worry about losing if he promised to give you your dream house, your dream spouse, your dream children, the acclaim, the recognition, the approval from all of the people that you would want it from, only you would never hear from God again. You would never experience his nearness to you again. Would you take the deal? I recently read someone equate how we can tend toward approaching life with God, almost as if he's a, a vending machine God. And we, we like insert our sinner's prayer of forgiveness, and we ask God to forgive us of our sins through Christ, and then out pops salvation, which is to be enjoyed much later in life. 
as long as we're near to God at least once, we might think, for just one religious experience in our life, or maybe from time to time a religious experience in our lives, then we don't really need him to be around really until we die. Surely as long as I put in a little effort and an occasional nod to his presence, he'll continue to bless me. And then you know what? You know what? We're like, we're smart. We're intuitive people. We can figure things out and live successful and meaningful lives for the rest. We don't actually need God for that, do we? Do we? What God is promising the people is a life of good stuff, but good stuff that he knows will inevitably funnel in on the self. And it's a story as old as humanity. A life devoid of the presence of God is a life full of continual searching. Searching for meaning, searching for value, searching for belonging. To quote Augustine for the thousandth time, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. If God has created us to find rest in him, then why wouldn't we be surprised when our hearts are forever restless? Spiritual quests, political quests, leisurely quests, sexual quests, all looking for the same thing. Or to paraphrase another writer, every time a man knocks on the brothel door, he is looking for God. Looking for some lower substitute of that which his heart was created for, of meaning, of value, of belonging, of unity and union with God himself. And so God is saying, Go on, good, good luck. You don't want life with me? Just go on and take it. But along with Moses, the people know and understand that this cannot be. The very reason that God has brought them out of Egypt in the first place was to dwell with them, was to dwell with him. They are about to build the tabernacle, which means dwelling, for goodness sake. God is, meant, is about to deliver the plans to dwell with them. And so they begin to lament and mourn And so God doesn't immediately leave them, but things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Now, let's get into the presence of God. In verses 7 through 11, we get a pretty vivid description of God's meeting with Moses. Moses has already received the plans for the tabernacle, but they haven't been delivered to the people yet. They haven't begun building yet. But those plans for the tabernacle will include plans that of the placement of the tabernacle. Every time the people move, the tabernacle is to be constructed in the center of the camp, in the center of the people. Not everyone can enter this tabernacle, but the priests are to be working on behalf of the entire people in which God is dwelling in the midst of his people. Here in this section, though, Moses has a small tent, which he calls the tent of meeting, which is confusing because the tabernacle will also later be called the tent of meeting. But that's this, what we're reading about here in chapter 33, is not yet the tabernacle. Things are not the way that they are meant to be, though, because rather than God dwelling in the midst of the people, in the very center of the people, the tent is way on out in the outskirts, like the suburbs of the camp. And it is in this tent where the very presence of God descends as a cloud and God meets with Moses. And the people can see all this happen from a distance. And verse 10 tells us that they worship. They must be so thankful that God has not completely left them altogether. At least he's still meeting with Moses. But they are separated from God. There's no access. There is no near presence. There is no friendship. There is only distance. Much like Adam walked with God in the cool of the morning, Moses is speaking to God as a friend. But the people are just there riding on Moses' coattails. 
Now again, we're not entirely sure of the timeline of how long it's been from here, from the beginning of the chapter. But in verse 12, Moses says, he's essentially saying to God, so, so I've still got these people with me. If you're going to come with me, I need to, be, I need to know who to bring with me? Who's coming with me? You've said, you know me by name, and I have found favor in your sight. So Moses is saying, if that is true, that you know me by name, and I have found favor, please now show me your ways that I may know you. Moses wants to know the very mind of God. He wants to grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of God. But then he reminds the Lord at the end of verse 13 to consider too not just that he wants to know the mind and the knowledge of God, but consider too that this nation is your people. It's not just me, God, that you have made promises to. You have made promises to the entirety of the people, to which God replies in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, if you were hearing this for the first time read out loud, this was maybe a bit confusing. God says, seems to say, I will go with you. And then in the next verse, Moses says, but I need you to go with me. Well, here's what's going on. In verse 14, uh, this is easy to miss in the English, but God is speaking to Moses in the singular. He is saying, he isn't saying, my presence will go with y'all. I will give y'all rest in verse 14. He is saying, I will go with you, Moses, singular, and I will give you, Moses, rest, implying the people, they're still on their own. So then Moses pleads in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I am your people. It is not in your going with us. Is it not that in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people for every other people on the face of the earth. Because seriously, what is it that makes this people distinct from every other nation on the face of the earth? It's not their land. They don't have a land yet. It's not their possessions. They hardly own anything. Much of the valuables that they did own, they just burned and melted down and made into a golden calf that then got melted down and they had to drink. And then, well, we know where that is now. It's not their morality that distinguishes them from every other nation. They can't even keep like the most fundamental base laws and regulations that God has given them. The only thing that sets this people apart from the rest of the world is that it is God the creator of heaven and earth. The God that has redeemed them out of Egypt and has shown, themself, shown himself to be without rival, it is this God that dwells with his people. God's presence in and among his people is what will transform them. God's presence in and among his people is what will give them life, is what will give them meaning security, and hope. God's presence in, among, in and among his people is what will allow them to be used as the means through which God will bless the entire world. And Moses knows all of this, and he ain't going down without a fight. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, refusing to let go until God blesses him. Moses says, don't do anything with us. Don't give us anything if you will not go with us. We do not want the land of milk and honey. We do not want the land of prosperity and of peace if you are not there. Back in November of 2016, it was our first Sunday together as a church. And if you remember those of you who were here, it was over three years ago, uh, this is the chapter that we considered together. As we were starting this church, I asked, is God even necessary for us to accomplish our plans? 
Or as long as we have the right preacher, as long as we have the right musicians, as long as we have the right style of worship and the order of service, if we have the right building and the right people, if we have the right website and the right branding, then this thing is just inevitably going to take off. Well, I need to confess to you again that this is still my temptation. To get everything in order, to make this perfectly made and wound clock, wind that sucker up and just let it go. Get the right small group, get the right gospel community leaders, get all the right people, let it go, and it will grow. But what's the point? God does not get the glory and Christ is not honored when we are dependent on our right branding, the right musicians, the right preaching. Who gets the glory? Well, the branding, the musicians, and the preaching gets the glory. As a church, then and now, do we need the presence of God in and among us, not only to survive, but to flourish in the way that we think that God wants us to flourish? Not just growing in number, but growing in depth of love for him, depth of love for others. Can I make a plug for our monthly prayer meeting? Uh, Things are going to be a little bit different next week and next month because of our our Super Bowl thing. But we meet at 3 p.m. for about 45 minutes on the first Sunday of every month. And while I am so, so thankful for the two families that show up every single month, and a couple other folks who are there from time to time, I would love to get to the point someday where we have to make some new logistical plan because the room is too small that we're meeting in to pray of our church coming together just once a month to plead with the Lord, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us from here. We don't have childcare available for that meeting, but what better time to involve your children, your children who can sit still and listen or even participate and contribute for 45 minutes. So would you consider joining us for that 45 minutes once a month? We don't want to just be a self-wound clock that is just rolling on momentum, but that we are constantly begging and pleading with the Lord to be with us. I quoted another pastor back in 2016, and I'll repeat it again. It is far worse to succeed in what Jesus doesn't care about than to struggle with what he has commissioned us to do. So let's continue to struggle so that we actually need him and the things that he wants us to do. So now back to chapter 33, lo and behold, while God doesn't come out and explicitly say it here in chapter 33, we'll see the narrative just flow right into chapter 34 next week. God will go with his people. It appears he has changed his mind again. He will renew the covenant and tabernacle amongst his people. In verse 17, God says, because he does know Moses and because he is pleased with him, because of Moses' interceding on behalf of the people, he'll do what God is asking. Now, how many of us would have just heard that when God says, all right, I'll I'll go with you and give the fist pump and be like, all right, we we got what uh, we were asking for. 
God has responded to the prayers of his people and he has given me or one of us restored health. He has provided financially. He has even forgiven our sins. And then we just kind of keep fist bumping throughout the rest of our life because we keep seeing God responding and acting in the way that we hoped that he would have acted. But this is not Moses. His request is not just to get God to go with them once again. His request is to be with God, to know God. And so while he's undoubtedly thrilled that God has said that he will now once again go with his people, Moses wants God. He asks, please show me your glory. Show me your beauty. Show me your splendor, your holiness, your weightiness, your glory. God's glory is what our hearts most want and most long for, even subconsciously. This is what we want, and most of the time, we don't even know that we want it. The desire, even subconscious desire for God's glory, is the reason for the knock on the brothel door. It is the intuitive human desire to see the mountains or see beautiful beaches and sunsets. It's why we watch sports, for the chance to see greatness and for the heights of victory. It's why we listen to excellent music and that can move us emotionally. It's why we can even go to substances for our, for, to look for help in our glory quests. Maybe this drug, maybe this drink will finally allow me to experience something meaningful and glorious, or at least just dull the unglorious. But Moses knows that his desires for all these things aren't too strong. His desires for real glory are much too weak. It's God's glory that will sustain him to lead the people in satisfaction of God, in obedience to God, and he wants to see and experience God fully and actually. So God says in verse 19, I will pass before you. And just like in chapter 3 at the burning bush, I will proclaim to you my name as Yahweh, the Lord, roughly translated as I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. This is my name and I am still here and will forever be your God. But while the glory of God is life-giving and life-sustaining for the universe, the glory of God is also a dangerous thing for sinful humanity. Verse 20, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So in his mercy, God takes Moses to a place where there is a cleft, where there is a, like a split opening, a little crevice where he can get into on the side of this rock, where Moses can stand and be hidden from the full glory of God. God himself will cover him as his full glory passes by Moses. And then when he takes away his figurative hand, then Moses will see what our ESV translation says in verse 23 as God's back. Maybe you grew up with a translation that says Moses saw the backside of his glory. Yahweh doesn't have a back. He doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a face. Even uh, when Moses is talking to God face to face. Uh, These are all figurative ways to describe a spiritual reality in language or categories that we might be able to better understand. But one scholar says that it might be better to use the phrase of not the back, God's back, but the after effects 
of the Lord's presence, almost like the contrails of a jet that have flown over. When you walk outside on a beautiful blue-skied sunny day in Albuquerque, you can see contrails going in all directions. These, you're not actually seeing the jet, even maybe you are if you're seeing it fly over right now, but you know that what, you know what made that. It is the jet that made it, and the contrails are indicating to you that the jet was there. What Moses saw, I have no idea, but the contrails of God's light and of his glory, this might be left to our imaginations, but whatever it was, Moses saw it. And the result of all this, the result of Moses' conversations with God, with the encounter of his glory, we'll see what this result is next week in chapter 34, when Moses' actual face shines and reflects God's glory. But for tonight, It's good for us to ask God in the same way. Show me your glory. Please show me your glory. It is not enough that you would just answer my prayers. It is not enough that you would merely forgive my sin. Show me your glory. And God has, Yahweh, in the second person of the triune God, John tells us, tabernacled among us. Jesus tabernacled among us. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Later in John 14, a disciple, just like Moses, asks Jesus to reveal the glory of God. Philip says and asks Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And how does Jesus respond? He asks him, he says, have I not been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, and he is before all things, and in him all things were created. By taking on flesh, by becoming fully human, uniting himself to full divinity, Jesus becomes passable. Being the God-man, he takes on real human emotions and yet does not sin like we so often do with our emotions. He grieves, he mourns, he hurts, he suffers. The God-man suffers and dies for your sin and for mine. He is the mediator interceding on behalf of the people. He is the rock which was struck, the place of safety for his people and nearness to God. And so it is entirely appropriate for for us to sing. We'll sing this uh, next week. We haven't sung this in a good, good long while, but it's about time again to sing next week, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, split, creviced for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus, his work, his love for us is the thing which saves us, which brings us near to God, which transforms us from the inside. Or as later in that song, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. It is the work and love of Jesus that is the answer and the question, or is the answer to the question of the Old Testament. How will God live with his people without destroying them? How will God be simultaneously just and merciful? The cross of Christ. 
Jesus receives the just judgment of God, which we deserve. And we receive the overwhelming blessing of God that Jesus deserves. And we just ride in on his coattails. And now the very Spirit of God, now by dwelling within his people, carves out room for his glory in which he might dwell with them so that those whom he saves through his work and through his alone, he will dwell with his people forever. Because this was always the goal of our Exodus story. Not to just be redeemed from slavery of bad habits and condemnation. Not to just get a bunch of stuff. Not merely to be saved from the reality of hell, but to dwell with God to be pulled into the very life of the triune God, to experience him, to delight in him, to love him, and to live with him. Now, maybe the story of the Exodus has the last several weeks been stirring in you new questions, maybe perhaps even stirring new longings, new needs that you perhaps never even realized that you needed or longed for. It is absolutely not a trite or silly response to say that Jesus is what you have been looking for. Jesus is the glory of God, come to live and to dwell with his people, to forgive their sins, to bring them meaning, to bring them identity, to bring them belonging. And it is by beholding his great glory, his life lived for us, his death died for us, his resurrection and his ascension on high that will drive every doubt, fear, and small desire away from the glory of Jesus. So let us behold him together. Even tonight, as we sing a few more songs, as we come to the table to remember his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, as we read and encounter him in his word This week, as we pray individually, together, as we confess our sins together this week, let us behold him. Let's ask that he would reveal himself. God, we pray that you would show us your glory. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and may his glory fill our vision. Help his glory eclipse all of these lesser gods and lesser desires. O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go with us. Come with us as we continue our pilgrimage toward final rest, as we continue to wait for your return, King Jesus, in which you will make all things right and new. By your presence, Holy Spirit, keep transforming, keep shaping, keep wounding even where we need to be wounded, that we might reflect the God who knows us, that we might reflect you to our neighbors and to the nations, and that our joy might be full. Show us your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.